Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, take a moment to, to remind everyone that we're uh, switching gears a little bit here as the summer has come. Our small groups are officially finished, and so every Sunday night at 5 p.m. we'll be back here um, at the building this summer. Uh, Rod and I will be rotating, and so tonight I'll be introducing what I'll be doing for the summer as we look at the subtext. Uh, what's happening underneath and behind the things that we're being told specifically um, in media. And then next week we'll give Rod an opportunity to introduce what he'll be doing um, on his Sunday night. So if you're interested in doing that again tonight at 5 o'clock, uh, we'll be back uh, looking at those, uh, those things. This may sound like a strange question, but if Christianity were a sport, do you think it's more of an individual sport like running or would you describe it more of a group sport like hockey? In other words, is God more interested in the number of people who persevere enough to just cross the finish line and say, I did it? Or is God more interested in forming a team of people who learn to interact and who learn to work together, who learn as a community to see what it is like for God's kingdom to be present here on this earth. Is Christianity, therefore, more individualistic, or is it more community? I like Ralph Martin's description. He says Christianity is inescapably personal and inevitably social. We have these aspects and these elements, and, and I think that the problem comes when we begin to undermine one aspect or element over and above the other. I think of a, a man named John who attended a church that had been in existence for over 75 years. And the church was having discussions about changing their name. And John had been a member there for 25 years. And at the meeting where the discussion came up, they were preparing to have a vote about the name change. And John said, a 25-year member, a former deacon of the church said, if this church changes its name... I will never be back. And there was a vote, and 80% 80 of the people, over 80% of the people said they'd like to change the name, and John did what he said he would do. He left, never went back to that church or any other church for the rest of his life. And on the one hand, you might want to applaud John and say, that's what you need to do. You need to stick up for your views and for your faith. And on the other hand, you'd say, if we all acted that way, what kind of a community would we have left? And so that's what we want to wrestle with is what does it look like in this day and age to be individuals who are placed into a Christian community? See, there, were, there was a few years ago somebody who noticed a trend towards individualism in America. And he predicted that there would come a time that Americans would isolate themselves from other citizens and they would withdraw into increasingly smaller circles of like-minded people. And in his words, they would gather into little societies formed to taste. By the way, the man who wrote that just a few years ago was Alexis de Tocqueville in 1840. Wondering what individualism would do to this newly formed nation. And I think that we're seeing what Tocqueville predicted. Increasingly smaller circles of like-minded people. You get around people, and it doesn't take very often to say, well, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. I know several families in this town that I've met through different events and activities who are passionate Christ followers, 
who often want to talk about the Bible and about what God's doing in the world. And when I ask the question, so tell me about where you go to church, they say, oh, I gave up on church a long time ago. I think we're becoming a society that's increasingly convinced that Christianity is an individual sport. And if those who you're put on a team with begin to, in whatever way, in understandable ways, to frustrate you or to bother you, you simply find your own way of doing things. And I think we're sympathetic in some ways to that, aren't we? I mean, how often have you wanted to say, you wouldn't believe what he just said to me? Or you lean over to someone and you say, I'm serious. She said that to me at church. The concerns we have, the ways we've been talked to, the grievances, they're all very real. And I think that on another level, we can all relate to Henry Nouwen, who once said, the community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Or perhaps you've heard this pithy statement, Oh, to be with the saints above, that will be glory. But to be with the saints below, well, that's a different story. And if you've been at church for more than five minutes, perhaps you can identify with those statements. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, 8 through 14, and we're going to be looking at the communal aspect, the importance of community. We're going to look at the example by which we should model our communities and the expectations that Paul tells us we should have of the church. So let's begin by looking at the importance of community. While I think it becomes evident much earlier, clearly by 3.8, it gets harder and harder to, to miss the fact that Paul is talking about a way of being in community. He, he warns the Christians there that they must get rid of things such as anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from their mouth. And I don't think what Paul is saying here is if you do these things, you don't get to go to heaven. What Paul is saying is if you do these things, you don't get to be the kind of community that God intends for you to be. So Paul is talking about the kinds of things that create a danger that are destructive to the kind of community that God envisions for his people. And so they are instructed in verse 9 not to lie to one another. And if you haven't picked up, we're going to see this one another theme that, that we have obligations to and commitments to and responsibilities to one another. There is a mutuality, and this becomes a dead giveaway that Paul is clearly talking about something about the community of people and not just the individuals who make up that community. So then in verse uh, 9, Paul will say, Seeing that you, which is plural, have stripped off the old self, which is singular, with its practices, and have clothed yourselves, which is plural, with the new self. And so there becomes a discussion here about two possible ways we could understand what Paul is talking about here. Is Paul envisioning the individuals all becoming this group of new selves? That you have one new self here, and one new self here, and one new self here. Or is what Paul talking about is a single new entity, a new way of being, a new people who themselves become that new self. And because of the play back and forth between the plural and the singular, it might be a challenge. But I want us to illustrate, I think, what Paul is talking about. And since I've already used a sports illustration, we'll go just in the deep end here with sports illustrations. Some of you may remember in 1980 when 
Herb Brooks was asked to be the coach of the U.S. Olympic team. And for those who know hockey and know what Herb Brooks was doing, there was an awful lot of criticism because Brooks was passing up some of the best players at the time. And he would say, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the players who know how to work with each other. I'm trying to create a certain kind of team. If you've seen the movie Miracle that's based on this event, there's a scene where after the loss at a hockey game, Brooks has the players skating laps down the rink. And when they come back, he asks, who do you play for? And he gets responses from these players on the U.S. Olympic team saying, Boston University, University of Minnesota, or Bowling Green. Brooks would say, again. And they would skate the length and they would come back. And this process went over and over again. Until finally the team captain, when asked, who do you play for? He said, I play for the United States of America. And Brooks says, finally, you can go to the locker room. He wants them to recognize that what is happening here is that we are to work as a team, not as a bunch of individuals who compose something. See, the new self that's being talked about in Colossians 3.10, I think we will find he's talking about a new team that God is creating. It is a new person, and it is about how we act and interact within community. I think that's most clear in verse 11. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, now is Paul here saying... In this church, we're, now, we're no longer going to use titles like Greek and Jew, like that these categories have somehow just disappeared and they no longer exist. Well, that would be a strange thing because in Acts 22, Paul says, I am a Jew. So Paul is clearly recognizing these categories, these identifying markers exist, but what he is talking about is our primary identity. If someone were to ask, who are you, is your primary identity going to be, I am a Christian? I am a part of the body of Christ, or is it going to be something else? See, when they would say Jew, or what they would say Greek, what Paul is looking at is that's the notion of saying, I play for Boston University or University of Minnesota. And Paul wants the Christians there to recognize these old titles, these old identity markers in this new community no longer are our primarily identifying markers. In fact, we can jump down to verse 12 where Paul will give us a few more identity statements about these people. He calls them God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Now, if we were well familiar, which I'm guessing many of us are with the Old Testament, that might sound awfully familiar. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 and 7 says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. In the Old Testament, God called people to become a new people, a new community with new boundaries and new rules of operation. And so what we find in this Christian faith is that any boundary cannot transcend those religious boundary markers. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our social status. None of those things become what should identify us within this community. There was a second century man named uh, Aristides. And he wrote a document kind of defending Christianity or explaining Christianity to people. And in that document, he called Christians a third 
race. Because people were trying to figure out, where do these Christians belong? Who are you? And when asked in that time and place, who are you? People would say Babylonian or Greek or Egyptian or Jew. But this man claimed that Christians could identify themselves not by their natural or ethnic people group, but by their association with other Christians. And I want you to begin to realize how revolutionary that notion is. What, what he is saying is, when there was a, an issue going on between Babylonian Christians and Egyptian Christians, that the fact that they were closer to the fact that somebody was a Christian rather than they were a Babylonian or an Egyptian was a completely new way of thinking and operating. That, that it used to be when Babylonians did something, all the Babylonians said that that's my people, and the Egyptians, that's your people, and they would create this boundary marker. But he is now saying we're no longer tied primarily by those ethnic links, but we are now tied by the fact that we are Christians. I will get more worked up, he says, if somebody does something to a Babylonian Christian, even though I'm Egyptian, than if somebody does something against another Egyptian. And I wonder, is that true of us? That this is our most predominant identity marker. That we are the people of God and that all who are here are a part of it. Sometimes I think our identity markers get confused with biological family. Well, why are you helping them? Well, they're family. And Paul would say to us, they're all family. Well, well, they're, 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 they're citizens of my country. And Paul would say, if they're Christians, it doesn't matter citizens of what country they are. Well, they're a Democrat or they're a Republican. No, they're a Christian, and my responsibility to them is based on that claim and statement. See, I think as a way to see how things have changed between when Aristides wrote... In 1996, whenever Paul Peter Berger did a survey, he asked black Methodists and black Baptists if they felt closer to black Muslims than they did to their white fellow Christians. And by and large, most said, I feel closer to black uh, Muslims than I do white Christians. Something has happened where we have identity markers and we relate to people more based on ethnicity than we do even the fact that they are fellow Christians. And so I think that there might be more work for us to be done in helping to fulfill what Paul envisioned, a new Christian community, no longer Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, to be a people whose primary identified identity markers are those who are holy, those who are beloved and chosen by God. So, so then what becomes the model of this new community? Paul says that we are renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. So God now becomes the model by which we act and function as a community. So, so one thing that we recognize here is that Christ is the image of the invisible God, right? We learned that in 115. And we also recognize that God comes in three persons as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you look at the Trinity, one of the things that you recognize really closely, carefully, is that there is one, a unity, but there is also many diversity in God. I mean, God is this three persons who is one God, yet there is diversity. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They have their individuality. And so this becomes a model for what it looks like for us as Christians. Our Christian community should have what? There should be unity, but there should also simultaneously be what? Diversity. 
within us. See, I think that there's been multiple efforts at forming different types of communities. Uh, Some will say we should have all diversity and no unity. You call that chaos or mayhem, don't you? Some will say we should have all unity and no diversity. Totalitarianism, communism. But the Christian ideal is where one maintains their individuality, but they're also in relationship with one another. Both unity and diversity are present in the body of Christ. So God becomes the model of what kind of a community that we are to be. God's the model also we see in verse 12, when we have these descriptions where Paul tells him to be clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And the thing we need to recognize about this list is these are the words first used to describe God. If you go through the Old Testament and go through the New Testament and say, what is God like? You're going to come across these words. I'll give us a, just a quick sampling. Compassion. 2 Corinthians 1.13, God is called the Father of mercies. Same language used there. Of kindness and of patience, Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Or of humility, Jesus says in Matthew 11.29, I am gentle and humble in heart. Of meekness, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul appeals to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. So what we find first is that these are the attributes of God. They're saying, hey, if you're going to live in community, just as God lives in community, you're going to need to learn to develop and to put on the very same attributes that God has in his relationship. And so I want us to talk about what we should expect then of this community that we're a part of. I've never met Lanny Wolf. But if I ever do, I have two questions I would love to ask him. The first question, is that for real? And the second is, where do you go to church? Lanny Wolf, in case you don't know, wrote a song in our songbooks, 739, called God's Wonderful People. That thrill that you feel when you get together with God's Wonderful People. And depending where you are on certain temperament scales, that may just warm your heart Or it may just make you feel like, I'm probably the only person who just doesn't feel that. Is this an honest song where every time we are together with God's wonderful people, we have this great visceral reaction? Or is there another side of the story? I'm not trying to put the church down. I'm simply trying to encourage us to be as honest about the church as Paul is about the church. Sometimes when we talk about the church, I think we talk about it like the place where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. Don't we sometimes talk that way? I think of the church community, we can say it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Now let's check and see if I'm just being critical or if this is a complete picture of what the Bible says. Verse 13 says, bear with one another. You look up that word in the Bible dictionary, it's going to say that it expresses the idea of restraining some action or emotion. And the action or emotion is not thrill that you're restraining here in this context. It is, in fact, a willingness to simply put up with something. So let me ask you, why would we need compassion and kindness and humility and meekness if this is where everyone was just above average? We wouldn't need those things, would we? 
In a perfect community, people don't need to develop those things. So what kind of a community requires those attributes? I think it's a kind of a community where sometimes you're around dumb people who do stupid things. Isn't that true? Now, recognize that the text also says one another, which means Paul is pointing out there's mutual exchange happening here. Which means of all of the dumb people and all of the stupid people that you encounter, sometimes it's the person in the mirror who is that person. You will need people in this community to be compassionate towards you. Amen. You will need people in this community to bear with you. To be humble in their dealing with you. See, I've been preaching long enough to know that the only way a preacher functions in a community is if people are compassionate towards him. Because we are all imperfect. We all will at times bear with one another, and at other times we need people to bear with us. But as one writer says, these are aspects, not just aspects of human temperament. It comes about when men are linked with Christ and conformed to his image. Where we learn this is from what we received from God. If you say, I don't have any idea what compassion looks like, look at God's interaction with you. If you say, well, I, I, I didn't have an example of kindness, look at God's kindness, and that becomes the model for us. Next thing Paul says, keeping us, uh, giving us a very realistic picture of the community, says, if someone has a complaint against another. Now, I'm sure none of any of you have ever had anyone complain against anything you've ever done in the church. So, so I'm just preaching to probably one or two or 200 people, right? <laughs> complaint. This is a place where there will be complaints, where, where there, people will express it. And, and Paul is saying here, expect this to happen. This will be a community where people will complain about things that are happening and sometimes even complain about things that you're doing. Paul is painting a very real picture here. Now, I will simply say, I wish I got to write the rest of verse 13. Because I guarantee you'd like what I wrote better than what Paul writes. So in the CFV, the Craig Ford version, it would say, if someone has a complaint against another, tell them you don't have to stand for this and then show them the door. Wouldn't that be just great advice in how to do community? And yet, what does the Spirit say through Paul? Forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And again, we go back to the model. God is the model through Jesus Christ here and saying, how do we learn to forgive? Look at the forgiveness you've received. And then that becomes the model out of which we live. And so Paul kind of sums all of this up in the 14th verse where he says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What Paul is saying here is it is love that becomes like those, those chains that tie us together. That love becomes the only function whereby we're going to pull off this thing called community, where we need to bear with one another, where there will be complaints, and where you will both need to learn to forgive, and you'll need to learn to be forgiven. Love becomes the ingredient. In many ways, what Paul is saying is, after you've put on all those clothes, make sure you put on the final coat, which is love. Because love is what binds us together in unity. When Will Campbell told the story of his brother, he wrote a book called Brother to a Dragonfly. And in the book, he said that he could not tell the story of his brother without telling his own story. And he couldn't tell his own story without telling the story of his brother. 
And he says of his brother, he says, the two lives, his and mine, were found in those days to be inextricably together. And I think that that's what Paul is saying here in this letter. When you are baptized into Christ and you are joined to the body, your life is now inextricably bound together with another. So I will not be able to tell my story of faith without including you in that story. And you cannot tell your story of faith without including me also in that story. Because we together and collectively are the new self. This new people group that God intended to be to serve as a light to this world that we live in. And so if I were to ask you now if Christianity were a sport, is it more like an individual sport like running? Or is it more like a team sport like hockey? I think you'd come to find that Paul would say it's much more like hockey than it is like running. What we've learned in this section of Colossians is that to be part of the community of believers means that we need to recognize we are linked together. This new community has to learn to model itself after the Trinitarian example of God, to to, to begin to adopt the attributes and characteristics of God, and we have to be realistic about what we're going to encounter because we will need to bear with one another. We will need to deal with complaints. We will need to learn to forgive and be forgiven. And above all, we need to learn to love. And I hope that if God ever asks you who you play for, you'll have a very ready answer saying, I play for the kingdom of God. That's my team, and that's my people. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into this world, remember we don't enter just as ourselves. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you'd like to pray with someone um, while we're singing this song, come to the back. Uh, We can talk to you about where you're at in your faith, uh, talk about where you're at in this community. But if you have any sort of a need, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and while we sing this last song.